to Disorderly Dogs, the podcast for dog owners. If you find yourself in precarious predicaments with your dog, this podcast is for you. I'm Rachel Harris. I'm a certified professional dog trainer, and I hope to give you a fresh outlook on your dog's behavior and practical dog training advice. All right, you guys, you know how much I love VetCS CBD products for my dogs. Great news, they make CBD products for humans. I got the orange flavored uh, dropper and I put it in my Lady Grey lattes and it is so freaking delightful. So you can get CBD for your dog, you can get CBD for you. Check out VetCS.com and you can use code DisorderlyDogs for 10% off your purchase. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Disorderly Dogs, the podcast. I am here with my special guest, Curtis. So Curtis, why don't you go ahead and tell us about yourself? Hi, I'm uh, Curtis. I have been in the dog training industry for uh, seven years now, and I have been owning and operating Pet Parent Allies since 2018. I just got married uh, in March, um, just before the quarantine, thank you, just before the quarantine came and shut everything down. Uh, we got our marriage license just a couple hours before they closed City Hall here in Philadelphia. Uh, so that was, uh, it's been an exciting ride. Um, and I love to read, I love to garden. Um, and my wife and I go on hikes in a local park here in Philadelphia called the Wissahickon three times a week, all, all year long, rain, shine, snow, wind, whatever. We're there. Oh my God, Curtis, we have a lot in common. That is my life story. You just described my life too, right? Like I love to garden. <laughs> I love to hike. Okay. So, and then you have two dogs. Is that right? Yes. So one is Vista. She is a Doberman, and she is just over a year now, and she is in training to be a medical alert service dog for my wife, uh, who suffers uh, severe migraines, um, and so we have been working with Vista on alerting um, and various tasks to alleviate that. So cool. Oh my God, that's amazing. So at a year old... Like that's a, those are amazing things. So are you, have you just been working on foundations? Are you, are you making pretty good progress in like the alerts? Uh, we've been working kind of everywhere. Um, just working distractions um, and uh, public environments while we had access to them. Um, we do work on some tasking, always strengthening the basics, um, trying to just not leave anything, uh, anything out. Oh my God. Right. Like the adolescent dogs, like, the, like you said, you're working on everything, right? Like you, you can't avoid any of that. Oh and some days it's working on just Vista. Can you not be awful today? <laughs> right. Right. Like, oh my God. I think, I think that we all like, even as dog trainers, we know that like puppies, adolescence is a lot, but then we live it and you're like, oh, right. Right. This is what it's like in real life. Not just when I go and see my clients for a little bit. <laughs> yeah. The client dogs, you're there for an hour and they know to bring their best possible game to you every time. Yeah. Right. Uh, oh my God. I feel like it's made me much more empathetic and a better trainer. You know what I mean? Like raising adolescent dogs. It just gives you so much more perspective. Yeah, it definitely does. Okay. And then who's your other dog? 
and the other dog is Dokus. Uh, and he's a true Heinz 57. Um, we actually did a genetic test. Um, he's our roommate's dog, and we did a genetic test, and it came back. He had no more than, like, 20% of anything, and that was the max. So, like, there's some lab in there, uh, plus some Sharpay, plus Cocker Spaniel, plus Australian Shepherd. Uh, he's just, uh, like, everything under the sun. Oh, my um, God, nice. And so Dokus is my experimental dog uh, who does the in-home agility um, since I can't do it out in the gym space that I rent in Philadelphia anymore. Um, so he's been learning to do things like handstands and stand and balance on tiny ottomans um, and walk, uh, jump up into the window and then walk around on... Uh, dog walks or just two by fours that we put on, uh, put on things and places. And he's also been my test dog for a beer discrimination, um, workshop that I'm developing where, uh, for any of the true beer enthusiasts out there, um, the fun little party trick that you can teach your dog to identify or to grab you like, Hey, get me the stout or get me the IPA. Um, or get me the pale ale or what have you. So Dokus has been also learning to distinguish between uh, some of the local Philly craft beers. Oh my God, that is so freaking cool. And seriously, like I, I recently got into some nose work, nose work stuff with my dog Waylon and it's amazing, right? Like they already have this ability. So I love that function, how you've been able to use it to distinguish between beers. That's amazing. <laughs> I will say it works much better with higher quality craft beers um, than for lower quality beers. So for anybody who uh, wants more information on that, uh, on that workshop as it comes, uh, just keep that in mind. Oh my God. I love it. Okay. So Curtis, oh, there they are. There they are. Uh, yep. <laughs> okay. So Curtis, I would love to hear like some of your backstory. Like how, how did you get into dog training? So it started with my first dog, Amber. Um, she was a beagle mix. And actually, after having Vista, I think there was some Doberman in there, too, uh, because they have a lot of a lot of she had a lot of Doberman uh, characteristics now that I look back on it. Um, but we got Amber uh, when I was 13. And even as a teenager, I realized pretty quickly, just looking at the way that she interacted with me and my parents, that Amber was easily the smartest person in the house. <laughs> easily. Uh, and I would watch her just uh, put on these shows and play these games. And she had everyone, me included, just wrapped around her finger. Um, she was also extraordinarily sneaky and mischievous. Uh, one year we lost, uh, a 14 or 15 pound ham to Amber, oh who was, you know, as a beagle mix, she was like in the, uh, I think there was also some foxhound. She was like ideal weight, it was around 50 pounds. So like not a huge dog. And that's a ton of meat for one dog uh, to consume. 
but uh, we left this uh, we left this ham out thinking it was safe um, after having like worked on it and prepped it and like done cutting and like made gravy for days beforehand and she didn't come anywhere near it. So then for five minutes while we were all out of the house, she pulled and moved a chair over from the kitchen into the dining room and got up on it and brought the whole ham down under the dining room and scarfed the entire thing by the time we found her. We, she was so stuffed, she couldn't hardly move. And she would have absolutely done it again in a heartbeat. Um, the mischievous genius dogs are really true my, truly my favorite. Is it ideal when they eat hams? No, but it helps us appreciate like how much genius lives inside of our dogs. Yeah, and that was that was when it really started to dawn on me. Um, prior to that point, you know, there's uh, animal documentaries that are pretty light as far as um, the behavioral complexities that dogs can possess. Um, but that was when I really gained an appreciation for uh, just how how much control of uh, of an environment a dog could have. Um, and so after graduating college, um, as I was looking around for, uh, for jobs, Amber was older now and um, still playing these games, but I found a job uh, just at a local Petco um, as a dog trainer apprentice um, way back seven years ago. Um, and so after starting that job, I, it uh, reignited my appreciation for Amber and her intelligence. Um, and I started to see all of the ways that we humans were totally just uh, like that she was so smart, she was bored. And so her solution was, I'm going to manipulate all of you into taking me out 18 times a day or uh, like giving me all of your leftovers and just, you know, like all of all of those things. So after I... Uh, after I started to learn more formally about dog training, it, uh, it really became apparent how, how responsive Amber was to just learning and to work. Um, and I uh, taught her how to play Twister. Um, I, I had to scent some of, the, uh, some of the squares on a Twister board differently, but I could tell her right paw on red and she would go and put her paw there. Uh, she was really an, an incredible dog. Um, so she was she was definitely my inspiration for becoming a trainer and wanting to share, um, just wanting to enlighten people to uh, to appreciate um, those things that their dogs do um, and to be able to see um, and understand how much how much complex thinking is going on. It always starts with one dog, doesn't it? Right. Like, Definitely. I feel like that's everyone's backstory. Like, well, there was this one dog and I learned so much from them. And then I realized, like, I mean, the profound effects of like training and like, I think people truly understanding who their dogs are, like, that's a pretty amazing gift that we all get to share with our clients as dog trainers. So that's so mm -hmm. cool. I love hearing about that. So has Amber since passed or is she still alive? Uh, Amber passed in... Uh, it would have been three years ago now. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so I want to hear just a little bit more about Vista. So what made you choose Doberman? 
Um, so as we were selecting, so part of uh, what we were selecting for was um, from the get-go, we had this intention of making Vista a service dog for my wife, Karen. Um, and so, uh, but one of the things that we, um, that we were considering is that um, Karen really wants a dog that doesn't necessarily make her more approachable in the sense of a golden retriever while like they might be a fantastic service dog just is still going to carry that goldy friendliness um and especially after reading some pretty terrible stories of people uh essentially going out into public with their service dog and being accused of like this is fake i'm gonna take this dog from you um and like having people like really trying to come up uh run and uh, just steal their dog from them um, we were looking for a dog that uh, both can be extraordinarily goofy, um, but is not so friendly and sociable that it would allow anybody to just come up and steal her. Um, so, and uh, I have worked with a lot of Dobermans um, over the course of my career, and they were consistently um, impressive in their work drive and their intelligence. Um, and also behind the, the scary Doberman exterior, they're total floppy goofballs. <laughs> um, one, of my, one of my favorite early, uh, early clients was a Doberman named Sabra. Um, and when he decided he didn't want to do work, he would just throw himself on the ground and crawl around like he was swimming, but he would do it on his side. And so like, <laughs> like 50 minutes or like 52 minutes into a session, Sabra would just flop down <laughs> and put on this ridiculous performance of uh, like just wailing and crying. And we always just laughed. <laughs> <laughs> because he had been coming from uh, doing things like uh, walking around the city on a perfect heel for like a very extended period of time. So he'd earned that, uh, he'd earned that period of just wailing and flailing. But uh, Dobermans are always a, uh, a really cool breed and really underappreciated breed to me. So yeah, I this uh, as a Doberman would be a great fit. That's so cool. I love it. I love it. So um, I want to hear just a little bit. So tell us more about um, how you came up with the name Pet Parent Allies. And um, so this is recent. You said in the last year you started and branded your new business as, as this name. 2018. Um, okay. And I started Pet Parent Allies after a facility, another company that I was working for in the Philly area closed down. Uh, it was called Zoom Room. Um, and I believe it's a franchise. You can find them uh, like dotted throughout the country. Um, no, but had one, we Zoom, had one in Denver for a while. Okay, yeah. yeah. Um, so the Zoom room here in Philly closed down, and I realized there was an extraordinarily opportunity, a very wide uh, gap of people who are now going to be without training. Um, and since I had worked with many of these people personally um, at Zoom room, uh, as they closed, I... Uh, just started uh, contacting anybody that I had worked with there and said like, hey, I'm offering private lessons now. Let me know if you need anything. And I thought about several names. Um, 
initially i it was going to be something like curtis kelly dog training you know the most basic of all basic names um but i uh i actually read somewhere now i don't remember where but it was it was somebody saying that like as a small business owner don't name it after yourself because that instantly shrinks the value and the and I guess the like the informational importance of what that business can carry uh, when you say like, oh, this is like when the company is Curtis Kelly dog training and then say, oh, this is Curtis Kelly. I'm the trainer. Like, it's just me. Um, and my eventual goal for pet parent allies is for it to be a lot more expansive. Um, and so I certainly didn't want to limit it to uh, here's my company. I'm the trainer. And that's just uh, like, that's kind of as far as it goes. Um, I want to eventually uh, have Pet Parent Allies be a resource for uh, just exactly what it sounds like. Um, I am here to be a coach and an ally to people and their dogs um, and here to really encourage people to see how they can be an ally to their dogs, um, especially in situations like if you have a reactive or nervous dog that's also very cute and people want to come up and just touch that dog, but that dog's really uncomfortable with it. Um, I think being a, being a good ally or being a good pet parent in that instance is um, just learning uh, to see what your dog's needs are and where you can speak up for them um, in the situations where uh, they can't or is social, socially inappropriate for them to speak up for themselves in that way. Um, like being able to tell somebody like, hey, sorry, my dog doesn't want to say hi right now, rather than have your dog uh, like snap at them for uh, an inappropriate encroachment into their boundaries. Um, the just being able to tell somebody uh, like, hey, no thanks, my dog doesn't want it, um, carries a lot less consequence um, for everybody involved than a dog potentially snapping or uh, even biting at somebody um, in that type of instance. Yeah, so a lot of my listeners own reactive dogs. Um, so I think that that's something that they can all relate to, right? Like that experience of they're trying to do their best, right? To be an ally for their dog, but the general public makes it really hard sometimes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Right? Like people mean well. So I found that really interesting, right? Like when you guys were choosing um, a breed of dog, I, I, I think that that's so relatable for a lot of people, right? Like they really don't necessarily want a quote unquote approachable dog right? Mm -hmm. like, the public can be so freaking rude. Like, please don't touch the dog. Please. Don't yeah. Touch the yeah. So, so Curtis, I, I really, I kind of wanted to shift the conversation because while it's a total delight to connect with you, I really wanted to hear um, some more of your experience um, about being a dog trainer um, and, and being black, right? Because I know that this is a huge national conversation right now, as it rightfully should be. And I think that the dog training world is primarily white. It really is. And I think that you have such a unique perspective. And I really just wanted to kind of give you an opportunity to share your experience, because I think that, um, you know, as a white person, I want to be an ally for you, right? Like, I want to be an ally for, for humankind, um, but also in the industry in the industry. So, so Curtis, I'll just kind of hand it over to you. Like, tell us what, what have your experiences been? So, um, 
I, uh, many of my experiences have been absolutely wonderful. And I have some of the most uh, ride or die clients that a dog trainer could ask for. Um, but on the other side, I have often experienced um, things like in some of the posts that I talked about, um, people uh, doing like doing a consult call with people um, and them not knowing explicitly that I am a person of color and showing up at their house and then having that odd and awkward interaction of um, they might be coming back from a walk with their dog or even as I knock on their door and they open it and even as I'm wearing my purple branded gear um, that they are instantly suspicious um, and concerned and very standoffish um, and they will ask me something like can I help you? Do you need something? Um, and even as I'm just as even as I've been uh, walking down the street to a client's house or park and I get out of the car and I'm a little bit early, I've had people just passing by and say, can I help you? Um, like, uh, and not like a chipper, like, hey, I would generally like to know if you need help with something and I'm ready to provide that. So much as it is, you're black. What are you doing in my visual space? You don't belong here. Um as well as, you know, people um, saying to my face after witnessing me working with their dogs and their dog responding a whole lot better to me than to them um, if their dog doesn't like me because I am black um, or if I'm a person of color. And for that to be my assumption in any dog that I'm working with is going to shut down the conversation. Um, like working with, a, uh, whether it's a reactive dog or like whatever, whatever their issues are, um, there's a lot of actions that I can measure against, uh, like make sure I'm not making prolonged eye contact and make sure I'm not moving too quickly and make sure I'm not, uh, standing, uh, like over them or into their space. Um, make sure that I'm not like moving all around in their house uh, if we were inside. Um, and so those are things that I can measure and I can control. But if a dog is not going to like me because of my skin color, then I should just leave. Because like if that's going to, if that's truly what that dog is thinking, then it doesn't matter how good a trainer I am. I, it's, the conversation's already over. Um, and so it's been... Uh, it's always been disheartening when I hear that because their dog is clearly not thinking that. Uh, like, I've just been demonstrating that their dog is responding very well to me. Um, and uh, But when people say those types of comments, um, it's less a realize in those moments doesn't really matter what I say to them. It doesn't matter what instructions I give for the rest of uh, for the rest of this hour. They decided they weren't going to listen upon opening the door and finding that I was black. Um, it's so um, even after uh, being asked uh, those things or being asked like, could my dog be a racist? Um, as I've demonstrated, uh, your dog just learned its name, touch, sit down. Uh, and leave it in a 15-minute time period. Uh, I'm not the issue. Um, 
So those moments are always um, hard and discouraging, as well as, you know, people, uh, I also offer a service uh, here in Philly um, to walk reactive dogs for people. Um, there's, just, a, there's a huge need for it. I think everywhere, right? Like it's a super yeah. valuable service. Yeah, absolutely. And having, um, you know, like I, if I were a, just a dog walker without the behavioral training and the experience that I have, I wouldn't want to take on, like, I wouldn't want to take a reactive 160 pound Great Dane for a walk. <laughs> um, so I offer uh, the behavior walks to people, um, but uh, some of the dogs that I walk are extraordinarily people-friendly and run on the very opposite end of the spectrum where I spent all my time um, having, having this dog uh, be controlled in its greeting and things like that. But even with the friendly dogs, I'll have people, uh, like, so I'll be walking uh, two Spinonis in particular, and they, they so see some... for those listening who don't know the breed, can you just describe them really fast? <laughs> so Spinonis um, are, like, uh, they are extraordinarily jolly, extraordinarily friendly. Um, these dogs make eye contact with any person at all there's really no discernment or or distinguishing just they make eye contact with that person and they decide you are now my best friend <laughs> <laughs> and for anybody who doesn't react like that they are always very confused um because i'm here i'm your friend i've decided we're best friends now what do you mean no um so spinonis are just uh they're like the hound version or like the uh, sporting dog version of golden retrievers in a way. Um, just super friendly, super social. Um, so even while I'm walking these dogs, I've had people smile and light up as they ran and just pancaked themselves on the ground in front of them and then looked up and saw me and their face changed into like shock and some horror and they just scuttled away. And uh, trying to explain to these Spinoni is like, no, no, it wasn't you. It was me. I just, uh, they didn't get it. Um, I knew it was going on, but um, I uh, also always walk around in my eggplant purple. <laughs> um, and I initially uh, always walked around in my uh, purple pet parent ally shirts. Um, to try and create uh, business opportunities for people seeing me walking around with these really, really well-behaved dogs that I have excellent communication with um, and who are responding to me and engaged and uh, like wandering off or picking trash off the street um, as an invitation to say like, oh, like how did you, uh, who did you, who is your person? Or like, how do you get your dogs to do this? Um, and then I can say, I'm a trainer, I can help, here's my card. Um, it has never happened once. No matter the dogs that I walk, whether it's Vista, the Doberman, um, the Spinonis, uh, German Shepherds, Great Danes, it has never happened once. Um, it happens uh, pretty frequently for my wife as she walks Vista around. Um, but I have kind of landed on the best that I can do in wearing 
my purple gear all around the city as the world currently stands is that it's a little less threatening. Like not even, not even to where it's inviting um, for people to come and talk to me about uh, the dogs or what I'm doing. Um, it's just slightly less threatening um, in the sense of if somebody's paying attention enough to see the logo on my shirt before they uh, duck and refuse to make eye contact, like they might catch blackness um, if they uh, acknowledge my existence for too long. Um, that if they bother looking at what's on my shirt, they'll at least see like, oh, this I guess is not inappropriate. Um, even just seeing um, black people walk, walking any dogs, uh, let alone Spinoni's or you know, some of the other dogs that I work with, is not really a super common thing um, in a lot of areas, even in a city like Philadelphia. Um, and so uh, those experiences are also always hard and discouraging. Um, and it's been kind of up until the past two weeks, I have been considering how I want to address this for a while, um, considering where is the place to start, uh, because it's reflected back um, even in the training world, uh, like at conferences, um, and uh, various things like uh, going to the APDT conference for two years in a row. And I was the only black male dog trainer of the entire audience. Of, and I, I look around for them, um, ready and super hopeful to feel that moment of, another one! Yes! It's not just me here. I'm not one of 500. Uh, even, if it, even if it's two, which is still really an abysmally low number, um, but uh, having the hope of seeing another person um, of color attending a training conference and then not finding it um, is almost even harder um, than just going into it expecting that I'll be the only one there and that's just it. Um, and that's something that I really hope begins to change over the next few years, but there's a lot of things that need to happen for uh, uh, for that, for uh, us to start seeing more people of color represented in the training industry, in the dog uh, and the animal husbandry and like pet care industry in general, um, it's a it's a extraordinarily white field pretty across the board um, in veterinary in veterinary um, and training and behavior, um, uh, like just it's it's universal. Yeah. It really is. And I think that that's something that has, um, I mean, obviously I was aware of it, right? Like I was aware of like the, the industry, industry being predominantly white, but I think that, you know, over the last few weeks, um, that has definitely been something that like, I would love to be a part of the solution, right? Like I would love to see more black male trainers, like seriously, bring it on. Let's do it. Because ultimately we all share the same mission, right? We all want yeah. dogs to live better lives and their people to understand them more. And I think that that's only in our best interest as an industry yeah. Have more diversity of people sharing that message. So I would really love to hear like from your perspective, what do you think we can do as an industry to create more 
opportunities to bring more people of color into our world? Well, so I, the first thing that I should point out is there are many uh, black dog trainers. Yes, there are. Not positive reinforcement trainers. Yeah. Um, so a part of it is just uh, a part of it, I think, um, as I've been thinking about this, is really granting access in as many forms as we can. So I think one of the first steps um, that would be great for uh, us as trainers in the industry is to do things like um, for the major certifying organizations, um, the CPDT, the IABC, um, the APDT, uh, the PPG, for those, uh, for those organizations, to set aside a specific um, level of funding every year to totally and completely uh, pay for um, people of color to do apprenticeships to enter into the dog training field. Um, for someone to gain the knowledge of even to just be able to do basic uh, like group classes um, and plus some of the more common uh, you know, behavioral issues, uh, wouldn't be tremendously hard or time intensive or expensive for that matter. And I think the funding for these industries can definitely be found. Um, it can definitely be made available to people. Um, and so I think offering uh, scholarships or fully, fully paid apprenticeships that people have to apply for, um, that people can apply for, um, it will be a good way to start bringing people into the industry. Um, but the other part is, um, like as a beginning dog trainer, especially if you're trying to own your own business, income can kind of slide up and down a lot. Um, and so I think in this system, there also needs to be um, some available resources uh, as a safety net for people who are really going to take the ambitious plunge of entering into the dog training world. Um, because it is mostly white, it is mostly middle-class people who had some kind of safety net going into it, probably. Um, and But for so many of these people of color um, or these uh, people who might, might have had an interest, that safety net isn't there. And so um, to do this apprenticeship and then go into the field and not be able to find any clients, you're kind of in the same spot. So I think um, there... The, the other part of this is to set up a system to specifically divert um, some clients into those people's hands, um, even just to give them a chance to, um, to, have a, to have a spot of success in the industry. Because there are more than enough dogs in the world that it doesn't have to be a competition. Um, but I, it's like so much of, especially if you're doing local lessons and you're competing with other dog trainers, then you need a certain amount of startup capital to have a website or have business cards and or you need the time to be able to go and distribute that, uh, that advertising where if you have to work three jobs anyway, then why bother? Um, people are going to go with what's stable even if um, it's a lower hourly rate than what they could be making um, if they if they got some footing underneath them yeah so yeah. um i think also um 
I think also what these organizations can be doing is setting up um, setting up funding or have trainers um, volunteer to give specifically free classes um, to uh, low-income neighborhoods um, or low-income communities, specifically black communities. And I have thought about this, and I say free specifically because, um, I mean, I have a dog trainer, have found I'm kind of always having to fight to say, like, no, I am this amount valuable anyway. And so simply slashing the prices uh, to be able to accommodate for people who couldn't ordinarily afford it, I don't want that leaking into any trainer's psyche of just, well, oh, but I'm only earning this much for it. Am I only like this valuable? My time is worth more than that. My information, my expertise is worth more than that. So I don't want people to feel like they have to do that mental battle with themselves um, and just decide for anybody that wants to do it, decide ahead of time, I am donating this specific amount of time and expertise and information um, to try and help um, spread just knowledge about dogs in general to communities of color, to um, impoverished communities, to people who didn't have the resources to find that information, um, or who like can get to Google and that's as far as they go. Which you know, you uh, you ask any question about dogs or anything to Google, and you will get a billion answers back. And it's it's really hard for people to parse through what is valuable information and what is. Um, maybe outdated methods. So I think um, any any trainers that wanted to uh, do that to um, just donate some time um, into doing like, even if it's just a one hour group class once a week, just like that one hour into helping distribute more and better information for people about how best they can care for the animals um, that they have in their lives is uh, another uh, super important step. Um, the other part of the equation, I think, is rescues. Um, because many rescues, especially here in the Philadelphia area, are rather elitist about what kind of people they will even consider as adopters. Um, so people have to own their own home People have to have a yard a certain size. People have to have a, a like complete and functioning fence for it. People have to have a certain amount of income, a certain amount of time. Uh, like uh, they have to have recommendations from like a vet or the ch white middle-aged like woman trainer that they know. Um, so all of those things, what they what they come out to are barriers, barriers for people who would. Um, spend the time and the effort and care um, into adopting this dog who are never going to even make it past the like, what's your name? Where do you live? Part of the application. Um, so I think there is mass opportunity for rescues and shelters um, to not be um, setting up barriers for people of color to be getting dogs. Um, that are not just the pity from the shelter or the pity from 
the breeder down the street who sells it for 50 bucks and at three weeks old is undernourished, underfed, no vaccines, way too early to be taken away from its mother, um, but is passing it off as being um, like eight or nine weeks. Um, but that's what people have access to. Um, because the other part of it is that um, breeders in particular, um, I think there's an opportunity for breeders um, to select some dogs to send into uh, communities of color um, or poorer communities. Because going back to that story about Amber, um, when people only have access to that pity who's leash reactive, resource guardy, uh, territorial, um, and like you can't approach from the left side or something, um, or they only have access to that pity puppy um, who could develop any number of um, behavioral problems due to the, the early separation and not having um, even the basic resources it needs for the first three weeks of its life, um, and not uh, that also coming along with the information of like, uh, here's how to do it better. Um, I think there's an opportunity for breeders to be sending, to be picking specific dogs and sending them to people in these types of areas or these types of communities. Because without those, um, without the dogs that are even, have the potential to be the like brilliant and entertaining and mischievous dog without it being, oh, well this dog is mischievous, but it's to the point where it doesn't go outside ever. Um, I think people who otherwise would develop an interest in dog training, just interacting with their dog are missing out on that opportunity because they don't have access to any of those dogs that could be, um, that could be, uh, like that really entertaining and inspiring dog, um, that people want to learn more about or learn more how to interact with. Um, and then I think also, um, as a whole, um, I think all of the certifying organizations, I think trainers from around the world, um, can come up with a way to distribute the information about positive reinforcement training, um, to people of color, to poor people, to black people, um, because that information simply isn't available. And a part of that, um, is the issue of when those people themselves are living their entire life in a state of constant fight-or-flight response. That's just the way that they know to interact with things. It's just the way that they know to interact with their dog. Um, so having people also um, enter into the dog training field, um, people of color and Black people specifically, I think... Um, as it stands, there's a certain level of privilege um, for anyone uh, to be able to enter into the field. Um, and I think uh, a part of it is not going to get fixed until the people themselves are not living in a constant, um, extraordinarily stressed state of fight or flight response every single day, just existing, just existing as they are. Um, I think it's, uh, that's a, that's a major component um, of having people 
uh, be able to enter into the industry as people of color, as black people, um, uh, the ways for the industry to be able to extend that access and extend that knowledge base into, into those communities. Yeah. Oh my God. And, and thank you so much for your insight into all of this because it is, it's multifaceted, right? Like it's not just dog training. It's not just becoming a dog trainer. It's like the whole scope of, of being a human being and then bringing dogs into the mix. Right. And yeah. I think to your point about like, you know, the behavioral soundness of dogs, right? Like we need to make sure that there is access to that for everyone, that everyone yeah. can get a dog who is relatively behaviorally sound and not feel like they have to go, you know, um, to the person down the street because that's the only person that would give them a dog. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I think that to your point about what the dog industry can do, 100%, right? Like there is plenty of, of funds, right? From all of the dog trainers who are paying for their certifications and renewing their certifications. And I agree, that's something that I really want to see from the organizations. And, you know, I think that as a, a white person in the industry, I think that we have an obligation to push, right? Push the, the caliber of organizations that we're supporting. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, I know that you were certified through CCPDT, which I also am, but um, from my perspective, I felt like their um, response and outreach over the last few weeks has been pretty diluted, if you will. Um, and that's something right. that like, you know, I think that we can control, right? Like if industries aren't working for the greater good, then let's support other organizations that are. Yeah, yeah. definitely. So um, I just want to get your perspective a little bit as being certified through uh, CCPDT. How do you feel? Do you feel like you are recognized for who you are in the industry or do you feel like you want to see more? Um, I definitely want to see more. Um, I think I, through Instagram, I made very, very brief contact with uh, whatever person runs the uh, IABC uh, Instagram account, but it was like an exchange and then it died. Um, I think, and um, I think having a part of uh, being able to make these changes is for these organizations to deliberately bring um, younger voices, people of color, um, people with different perspectives into their, their circle of leadership. Because um, otherwise, and I um, have been um, crafting uh, an email to write to um, the organizations that I'm a part of um, and to the other general organizations um, that certify in some capacity uh, for positive reinforcement training of just like, I, you guys can find the like seven or eight black dog trainers in the country um, and you should be coming to us and asking us like, what can you do? Um, like you should be looking through your member bases independently and seeing like, who do we have that has a, has a different perspective? Um, who do we have that can add to the conversation in a way that, um, we haven't thought of before. I haven't seen any of those things happening. Um, so I think there is definitely a, a need for uh, fresh perspectives and fresh mentalities um, in all of these organizations just across the board 
Um, and it's not any one organization's fault when it's a worldwide systemic issue, but still it's an opportunity to take leadership about it rather than falling into the flood of, we're going to do the bare minimum necessary so that people don't get angry at us. Um, like we're doing something wrong. Like every, every organization under the sun at this point has sent out probably something that's just like, we support this, but how we don't know specifically, not really. Uh, never mind. Please don't ask us. Um, Right. Right. And I feel like that has been my interpretation of a lot of like the statements I've seen released from the different organizations, right? Like, okay, you can make an Instagram post or send an email, but like, let's see it, right? Like, let's actually see the progress, the concrete progress. And, and it's, it's been such a, a privilege to talk to you today and hear your perspective. And um, I am grateful to know several other people of color in the industry. And y'all are wise, right? So wise and you have so much to share. So um, I 100% share your sentiment. I would love to um, see you present at a seminar. Right. I'd love to see you maybe be, you know, um, maybe get some backing from the industry to go into your community and, um, you know, encourage other black men to get into dog training. Right. Like, and I think that there's so much power. And I think that the organizations, you know, in the positive reinforcement world have a lot of backing, right. Financial and, you know, just in the industry. And I think that it would be really relatively easy just to, bring more diversity and support people more. Like, I don't think that it's a complicated thing that that you've suggested. Yeah, Um, I don't think it is either. I think it could be done pretty easily um, and pretty sustainably, um, which is the other key, is that um, I've been uh, happy to see um, people's response all around the country, the outcry, um, the demand for like, this doesn't work anymore. We need something different. Um, but it's the pace of this past two weeks is unsustainable. Just full, full stop. Nobody can be protesting like every day out there for their entire life. It doesn't work that way. Um, but I think even just doing the things, um, having, Uh, like pulling the funding to be able to make some of these changes in small ways. And as individual people, I think just um, any opportunities that people can take to support black owned businesses of any kind, even if it's not dog training, if you don't have a dog, um, even if um, you, it's just, you get your, uh, you get your thing from, um, that black person in your city rather than Amazon. Um, and I, there's been a lot of people who have joined like five book clubs, um, to read up on anti-racism right now. Um, and that can't be sustained like to that, to that degree for an extended period of time. Um, and so I've been extraordinarily happy about, um, about the turnout. Um, we had a massive protest here in Philly. Um, there's been big protests all around, uh, the country in various cities. Um, but I think it's also important for people to remember once, uh, like once everywhere goes into like phase green and you can go to your bar again, or you can go, 
uh, like an eat out at your favorite place again, um, to just still be remembering to take these steps, um, even if it's in small ways, even if um, you write a you write some scripts down for yourself um, that you can throw back at your racist uncle's face whenever he makes that comment because everybody has that racist uncle. Um, and so, and uh, like, you just get to know, uh, the, the local leadership of your town or city, like what are their policies? Um, because you can reach them way more easily than you can reach a nationwide scale of change. Um, and so I think, um, keeping in mind, uh, to just practice this in a sustainable way and add in like add in a new method of supporting um, Black Lives Matter, of supporting people of color, um, of supporting women, of supporting um, gender non-binary people, of just everybody who has been, um, who has been told you are less than just because you exist the way that you do. Um, I, uh, to just be thinking about what are the ways that you can implement a little change um, and sustain it for a month and then implement another little change and sustain it for a month. Um, so I think there are a lot of opportunities all across the country. And um, this, uh, the incidents, the, the events of the last two weeks uh, sparked a awareness and a concern um, that wasn't there, but these things don't just go away. Um, like even in some cities where they disbanded the police department, it's still, there's still a vacuum and all of these questions have to be answered and all of these things still got to be, still got to be practiced. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I think as, as a dog trainer, you're particularly thoughtful about like those small incremental changes people can make over time. Right. Because obviously that's what we do to make meaningful behavior change in dogs, but it's so freaking true. You know what I mean? That like, we all can be working one little step at a time to obviously make it a more just world for everyone. But then I think, you know, narrowing the scope to dog training, like, you know, reaching out and making connections and talking to other people in the industry, right. That don't necessarily share a lot in common with you, except for we are dog trainers. Well, uh, Curtis, thank you so much for, for taking time out of your schedule. I know that you are in demand right now, which is brilliant. And I hope that that never slows down. I hope that your, your schedule is just as busy as you want it to be for forever. But Curtis, for those of my listeners who would love to connect with you, can you tell them where they can find you? Um, yeah, so you can find me on Instagram as Pet Parent Allies, uh, or you can email Curtis at PetParentAllies.com. Awesome. Um, and I uh, would love to help you with your dog. So good. Oh my God. We'll, in we'll include links to that in the show notes um, so people can easily access you. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to learn more about us, please check us out on Instagram at a good feeling underscore in co. You can also find us on Facebook at a good feeling dog training, as well as our website, agfdogtraining.com.